for your business to be valuable, it, it needs to run without you. And there's a whole bunch of different things. In fact, there are eight unique things you can do uh, to make it so that it's less dependent on you. And that gives you lots of control. It gives you a better multiple if you ever want to sell, but it also gives you a lot more control of your time and a business that you're really uh, kind of overseeing as opposed to uh, fighting fires with. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 116, and today's guest is the one and only John Warlow. He has been on the show already before. He was like, I think my fifth guest or something like that. And I was really excited to have him back on the show, especially in light of this three-part series that we've been doing. So if you're just jumping on, we did one episode, started off, which was with Brandon Hall, all about how a company's valued, understanding how a certified valuation works and really refining your EBITDA, understanding the things that'll impact your EBITDA, your multiple. And then the next episode that we just got done with was Ryan Turbis and how to calculate net proceeds. So, okay, great. So I've got this valuation, which is my top line, but how much do I actually take away? How much do I put in the bank and when? So we really, really dove into that with Ryan. So now it's like, okay, great. So I know how much my company's worth. I also understand roughly how much I'm going to make and when I'm going to make it, but what do I do to increase the value of my company? So that way I can drive towards a specific outcome that I want. And I thought John was amazing to have back on the show because he's got his book built to sell. He has a whole narrative with Alex, this fictitious character that wanted to sell his marketing agency and couldn't get the value that he wanted. And then he has this company called the Value Builder System, which I've mentioned before. And we've got a link in the show notes so that you can go take your score on the eight key drivers that will increase the value of your company. So you'll get a score out of one out of 100 on each of the eight key drivers and an aggregate score. So you have an idea of where you might be falling shorter or you might be succeeding these eight key drivers. But the point of today's show is that we dove into how you can specifically make your company work better without you and how you can make a machine that has transferable cash flow that will be enticing for anybody to want to buy. So it'll increase your exit options and it'll increase your multiple because you've created transferable revenue like we've talked about. So like I've mentioned before, in the show notes, we've got a link to the value builder score so you can go get your eight key drivers. It's like 12 minutes long or something like that. And we also have another round of 10 valuations in biz equity. Like I said, it's not a certified valuation, but it gives you a really good benefit benchmark. So if you want to go take that, make sure that you're jumping all over because we only have another 10 for this episode. So with all that being said, I really hope you enjoy this episode with John. He's got a lot of practical advice. If you've not read the book, Built to Sell, you got to go do it. Otherwise, without further ado, here's my second interview with John Morlow. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your timeframe to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. John, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? It's been a long time. I, like we were just saying, uh, you were like my fifth episode. And so hopefully I'm not a, I don't sound as uh, ridiculous as I did back then. Uh, you still sound like the guy from Fargo though. Uh, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Minnesota in you. you can't uh, take I don't know if you've watched that show, but hopefully it's not as ridiculous. There's no like dead bodies in my background no. or in my backyard or anything. 
on you. I'm just yeah, you, you got, we got to say, what's a, you got, you say about or something. There's yeah, a, yeah. Okay. We can have like a, yeah, right. a duel over who has the stupidest accent. <laughs> All right. Um, so <laughs> I th- I'm excited to have you back on the show. Uh, the listeners who have been caught up uh, over the last couple episodes, we like, we literally teed you up perfectly um, to, to plug in all the the ridiculous amount of wisdom that you've got on the the value drivers and the company you've built. But for anybody that might not be familiar with your story at this point, you know, just kind of give us a little bit of the background of what, you know, your, your experience selling your businesses and then a little bit of how about your book and why you ended up writing it before we go into the eight key drivers. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I started uh, starting businesses. I've had four now, exited them and have learned lots along the way, lots of mistakes and um, maybe a few lessons. I tried to codify some of those in the book I wrote a while ago called Built to Sell. Um, and then out of the book actually came the company Value Builder. So we uh, now have worked with 40,000 businesses to help them improve the value of their company. It's our view that today when business owners go to sell their company, they're they're being taken advantage of. I just did a podcast actually with a guy who sold his company, his software company for three and a half times profit. And it, it struck me as a low multiple for a software company, right? But it for was software first, company, no kidding. Usually yeah. I thought you were going to say revenue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it was his first time through and admittedly he, he just didn't know really all the ins and outs. And so that's what we try to do at Value Builder. We try to basically work with business owners who are thinking about exiting and get them to, to think about their business through the eyes of an acquirer so that they can jack up their, their valuation multiple. I mean, people who start with us on average are getting three and a half of the best performers of the people we have on our system that have a value builder score of 90 or more. They're getting offers of 7.1. So more than double the average. So that's kind of well, what I do. That is awesome. And we're going to, we're going to peel back all that. Uh, Cause we, cool. we, over the last couple episodes, we were talking about EBITDA, what the heck is that cash flow, multiples, all this kind of stuff. And you know, just even a little bit of context, John, this is so fun. Cause like, I remember, and I think you actually ended up redoing your first podcast intro. Cause you're like, I think, maybe a half a year, a year above me. And I remember when I did my, when I started my show, I'm like, I, you and I were sitting when I was getting certified, I'm like, I don't know what the heck I'm going to talk about. I want it, I want it to be different than yours because you've got this regimen of interviewing only owners. So I've kind of been uh, finding my way. But I remember literally I was listening to your first episode like three years ago or two, whatever it was, two and a half. And I was cleaning and it was your episode of like, I couldn't believe what happened and like why there's no one really solving this problem about growing value, understanding how to tie it to the X, all this stuff. And I was like, I know what I want to be doing. (laughs) And then, you know, then I went up and got certified and and you talked about this value builder score. And then we can kind of dive into the eight key drivers because I think, you know, the big takeaway we've been talking about the last few episodes, transferable value. You know what I mean? Like how, how easily can you transfer your cash flow? And, you know, why don't you like explain the, the, the survey and the, the, how you're actually calculating this? Because I think we got into a lot of technical stuff and you've done a really good job with your book and explaining, you know, what that really means. But then also the survey that it's not, you know, three years of financials and, you know, diving into this full, you know, cavity search, you did a really good job. So can you explain a little bit about that, the 40,000 people and like what the scores mean and how that ties to the three and the seven that you're talking about? Yeah, for sure. So the questionnaire, it, it takes about 15 minutes to complete, by the way, and it, it basically walks through the company and asks, asks a bunch of questions that an acquirer would ask. So the theme, the common theme across all 15 minutes worth of questions is, is really how well would your company operate without you? 
And if the answer to that is not very well, then your multiple is going to be very low or non-existent. In other words, you may not have a sellable company. If your business it would, would hum along really nicely with, without you, in other words, you could take a three-month vacation, then you're likely to be paid quite a bit better multiple. Because, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's basic, right? So if you think about it, when you come into a business, if you're buying it, you want to know that it's going to thrive without the owner. And so there's, there's these eight factors that acquirers look for. So, for example, one of them would be recurring revenue. Uh, the view that recurring revenue is something that's going to happen with or without the owner being the, the rainmaker for the company. And so if you've got recurring revenue, that's going to boost your value. Um, if, if, too, if too much of your um, customer relationships are in the eyes of the in the hands of the owner, meaning the owner is the person that customers kind of care about, then that's going to discount your value. And so we've got a whole series of questions again. There's these eight factors, but really, if you if you wanted to know what the common denominator is, it's it's could your business thrive without you personally uh, running it every day? Well, and and what I what I find interesting is you got so much. I mean, forty thousand people that are taking that's a lot you get to the law of large numbers so that's a lot of data and so what do you mean when you're saying that you know the people the, the correlation between the three and the seven and then how do you track that and like can you kind of explain that for the listeners oh, yeah, yeah 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 sure so so one of the questions we ask on the questionnaire is uh well first of all we ask uh, about your your profitability then we ask about whether or not you've received an offer to buy your business in the last 12 months, a written offer to buy your business, like a serious offer to buy your business. Mm -hmm. And if so, what multiple of your pre-tax profit was the offer? And we just have done the analysis and looked at all 40,000 of our users. And we've discovered that they, when they go through the complete evaluative questionnaire, the average score, by the way, out of 100, uh, is mm -hmm. 59. Is 59. So the average performer gets a 59. And that average business, when we just look statistically at what multiple they've been offered, it's 3.5 times of pre-tax profit. And mm -hmm. then when we then when we analyze and we just we take this one cohort of, of business owners who have achieved a very high score, so this would be 90 out of the possible 100, 90 or better, and we look at the multiples they've been offered, on average, they are 7.1 times pre-tax profit. Um, so that's basically the math behind it. Well, got it, which which makes a lot of sense then, because, in, in, you know, I don't, and that's any kind of industry, any kind of sector. I mean, what is there any... Any size companies that you're looking at? Because I mean, the ranges. I mean, you have to get to these averages, right? Because all of these things are different. But are there size companies or any kind of you know you know benchmarks that you've got? Sure, sure, yeah. So our typical user would be a business owner, uh, would be between one and twenty million in annual revenue, and they're you know they're they're owner operated companies. Um, they're the, the owner knows everything there is to know about making a widget, but they're they're probably not experts on selling companies. So they're, you know, mm -hmm. this is for, for the first time it's, it's new to them. I think one of the biggest misconceptions, I think one of the biggest uh, areas we rail against a lot is the idea that businesses are valued based on your industry. And you hear this all the time. You hear, you know, I'm an HVAC guy, so I'm going to get four times EBITDA. Or, you know, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a SaaS software company, and therefore I'm going to get uh, three times revenue. And what we find is that the reality is very different. We see that, um, you know, companies... While industry is important, it is certainly not, you know, you're certainly not predestined to get whatever valuation benchmark there is in your industry. I mean, I'll give you an example. Ruby Receptionist is a cool company. Have you ever interviewed Jill Nelson? I have not. Oh, you should get her on the show. She is a cool lady. So she, I think she's based in Seattle or, or Portland, Oregon. She's out, out Pacific Northwest. 
Anyway, so Jill, uh, she runs this company called Ruby Receptionist, and it couldn't be more analog, more 1980s. It's an answering service, right? So you, you mm-hmm. call in and you're- you know, They're typewriters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you're a lawyer and you want someone to answer the phone, you're a solo practitioner, so you hire Ruby Receptionist, they answer the phone, hi, Bob's, you know, legal services. And so uh, she builds the business up to $11 million in total revenue. Oh my gosh. So we've done, we've looked at industry verticals and looked at what the multiple would be in the administrative support vertical, which is the vertical she finds herself in. And it would be roughly 1.9 times EBITDA. So a very low multiple, right? Mm -hmm. And so Jill, she's got $11 million in revenue. She wouldn't tell me what her profitability is, but let's say she's making 10 points. I mean, it'd be hard for us to imagine. 10%, right? Yeah, let's, let's imagine she's making 10%. So a million one profitability. So if she's looking to get two times a million one, well, that's about two million and change, right, for her company. She sells her business recently for $38.8 million. <laughs> it's like, it, it's such an outlandish multiple. It, it's almost unbelievable. But she did really well on one of the eight key drivers of company value, this thing called monopoly control. So she, she nailed it on one of the drivers. And so I tell that story to you, Largely because, you know, it's not, you're not predetermined to get whatever your industry average multiple. I think you do yourself a huge disservice by saying, well, because I'm in XYZ industry, I'm going to get X multiple. Well, it, you, first of all, I, I love it because I always like you, I think you and I have talked in the past, but it's like your company's worth what someone's willing to pay for it. Right. So right. There's, ben, there's benchmarks. And I, and I was actually d- uh, diving into Brandon Hall, who's the certified valuations that were like, and he, he even agreed. I mean, he's done 135 of these. And the reality is like, he, that's part of the comps and how they get to this valuation. And I'm like, well, it's all kind of BS until someone buys your company. Right. Right. And I love it when valuation guys get really like kind of like the, the leather, uh, you know, patch on the elbow and the pipe and the, and the, the kind of glasses that peer over and they get really serious and scientific about valuation and, and while I don't mean to be discredit valuation clearly it's a very sophisticated and very important service but at the same time it is subjective there is a, an, a, a as you say the, the true value of a business is what someone's willing to pay for it. now when you're getting into divorce or you've got a partnership dis- dispute. Or estate and, planning or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. somebody's actually got to put a number on it. Then clearly you need a formal valuation. You need to pay like probably tens of thousands of dollars for that if you've got a decent sized company. And it's going to get to you pretty close to the number. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, you know, you and I both got interviews with people that, that the number, you know, they'll get 2x the number or they'll get 50% of the number. Uh, for and various on, well, and I think it also ties to like, this is where you know, your methodology and then the exit plan you tie those two together because it all depends on what, what what route you're going to transfer your company to, right? And whether it's estate planning or family transfer or private, I mean, all that depends, <laughs> totally depends. And so, John, let's like, let's maybe dive into the eight key drivers in the transfer sure. because I think what, you know, out of the last two and a lot of the people that you and I interview, I think you, you probably can pinpoint, like you said that uh, she did really good at monopoly control, but like maybe, I don't know if you want to go over all eight of them quick and then we can dive into a couple of your favorite ones because, you know, I, I will let's get the owners and the listeners to be able to have some takeaways. Like, because before they're like, okay, great. Well, I understand this, but what can I do about it? <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So the eight in no particular order are your financial performance. So how much revenue profitability does your company generate? So that's basic blocking and tackling stuff, right? Number two is growth potential. So how much growth are you going to generate from your business in the future? Buyers are looking for the future. They're not buying the past, right? So they want to know mm-hmm. what the growth potential of the business is. 
Customer score is how satisfied your customers are. So overall satisfaction level with your customers is going to be important. Recurring revenue is a fourth. And again, I think I shared with you the reason for that. Monopoly control is how well differentiated your product and services is. The reason Jill Nelson, by the way, got some outlandish multiple is she had developed as part of her answering service a routing software so that when a call came in, she dispatched the call to the available attendant. She had a network of these receptions all across the country. And it was the routing uh, software that she built that gave her point of differentiation. And the reason for that is because every other receptionist company, when, when, the, when the receptionist got busy, the person calling would get an answering machine. And that's exactly what they wanted to avoid, the customer wanted. Mm-hmm. to the routing software was got the, the, the phone call, the customer's phone call to the right person. Well, that had applicability to a variety of different industries, which is which is what, what made her business unique and what, what got her at such a great multiple. Who so bought her, by the way? Was it like private equity or is it, it was a, a private equity company that, that saw uh, a way to, to monetize her software in various other industries? Hmm. Um, hub and spoke is another driver of company value. It basically is, is how dependent the company is on you, the owner. Uh, the Switzerland structure gets its name from the country of Switzerland that honors independence. It's, you know, it's almost fascinated by and obsessed with independence. And so Switzerland structure measures your business's dependent, dependence on any one customer, employee, or supplier. Uh, and the valuation teeter-totter is how cash flow moves through your business. The more cash your company generates, the more valuable it is to a buyer because they don't have to inject working capital into your business. So again, I'm, I'm going fast here, but those are the eight. Well, no, I'll be on the show notes and then we'll have a link to where they can take the survey and stuff Perfect. too. And, and you know, what I want to know, John, is like when you look at these different AQ drivers and, you know, I've had cl- customers that have gone through this and then you have all these different owners in different industries, different journeys where they're at in their life stage of the, the business. How do you prioritize with what you should be doing, whether it's because, you know, you've only got so much time and so much capital, you know, how do you, how do you determine like, okay, there's eight different things. Where's my biggest bang for my buck? You know, where's, you know, how am I mitigating my risk the most? I mean, is there any way that you've seen people, you know, take these and and prioritize them? Yeah. So you're going to get, you know, you're glad you're going to put the link in the show notes because people can go to the show notes, take the questionnaire. When you get your results back, you're going to see your score on these eight key drivers out of 100. And I think the answer is start with the ones that you're performing the lowest. I don't, mean to distill it down to its basic terms, but when a buyer looks at your business, you know, they're looking for hair on the deal. That's what how buyers talk about when there's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you can avoid any major, you know, any major hair on the deal, any major problems, that's at least going to get uh, you through the diligence process and, and get you, I think, a fair multiple. If you can get one or two of the drivers to outperform, well, that's great. But if I had to pick whether I should accentuate one driver or fix the the ones that are really underperforming, I'd fix the underperformers. It's like you've heard in job interviews, like, like job, like personal coaches say, accentuate your strengths. Don't worry about your, your shortcomings. And I think that's BS. And I mean, sort of when it comes to the value of your company, I think if you've got shortcomings <laughs> in your business, um, you can have all the strengths in the world, but if you don't sort and shore up those, those, those problem areas, you're not going to get a deal done. And the only deal you're going to get done is some crappy earnout shenanigans where you're going to be you know, working for some company for five years. So I think shore up your lowest performing drivers and then certainly accentuate the ones you score highest on. But but don't disregard, if you've got a low score below 50 on any one of the eight drivers, I would start there. 
So perfect way to answer that. And then I want to go back uh, to diving into a couple of these because I've got um, a couple of them that I want to expand because I know you you got some serious um, experience in the recurring revenue because your automatic customer book and some other ones. But to expand on the earnout and the multiple and the cash up front, you know, first of all, I know you've got, I think, I don't know if it was an article or a podcast, you did an earnout burnout or whatever it was. But you give, you give my listeners your, your definition of an earnout and then how does that, the money up front or an earnout, does that correlate with these drivers and the multiple as well? Yeah. So first of all, definition. So basically an earnout is where is used when an owner, a buyer and seller can't really make a deal. There's, there's too much of a gap in valuation. And so the buyer says, okay, I'll, uh, you know, I'll buy your business. And part of the consideration will be contingent on you hitting certain goals in the future. And so uh, oftentimes it's linked to EBITDA of your company as a division of theirs. If you're going to integrate the two companies really quickly. It could be revenue of your product line. It could be retention of a single client, et cetera. But there's usually some goals that you've got to hit. The earnout you should know, is at risk, meaning it's not guaranteed. And it's far from guaranteed, in fact, because you as the seller become, you know, a middle manager in a big company, most likely, or, uh, you know, a division leader of a private equity roll up. And if, in that context, you may not have control over some of the things you need to hit your number, your budgets, your market segment, et cetera. And so it's very much at risk. A lot of entrepreneurs leave before the end of the year, not just because they can't handle working for a big company, et cetera. Well, um, and I'm just a small story in that. I, I talked to someone recently where like, yeah, they, they like, I think they like, took the average of both the company's profitability because this is totally like a bootstrap deal. And then they say, oh, well, you know, we both do this. Well, let's just say we can do 5%. And then, well, by the way, you're not in charge of your budget anymore. And so like, they go like, well, we buy dump trucks this quarter. And like next, the next thing you know, you don't get your couple hundred grand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big, it's a big deal. And, you know, I think it strikes to the heart of why are you, why is a buyer buying this company? Is, is the buyer buying the company to integrate it into their business? If the answer to that is yes, and more often than not, the answer to that is yes, then, then the earnout is often going to be at, uh, at loggerheads, hitting your earnout, you're often going to be at loggerheads with the goal of integration. So if your goal is to hit a profitability, you probably would run independently. Give me all the budget you you can and let me run this thing independently. I'll hit the earnout. Mm -hmm. If the goal is to integrate, you might want to have the buying company salespeople do the selling. So you, as the founder, might want to train the buying company salespeople, right? But if your goal is to hit a short-term number, you're not going to waste your time, you know, training their mm -hmm. salespeople on how to sell your product. You're going to just go after hitting your number. So again, I, I think earnouts are an, an imperfect tool used oftentimes in particular with service businesses, but used to bridge the gap between what a seller wants to sell their company for and what a buyer is willing to pay for. Um, it's different than a vendor take back. You've, you've heard vendor take backs or when, when, a, mm -hmm. when an owner is asked to finance part of the deal. Mm -hmm. those, are, those are usually used when a business is quite small and the buyer, oftentimes an individual, doesn't have the money to buy the business outright. So they're, they'll, they'll, they'll borrow essentially from the like owner. a contract for deed. Yeah. Yeah, uh, a portion of the of the uh, of the price, if you will, is paid over time, and uh, oftentimes the SBA gets in lend gets involved in lending to the 
the buyer and the seller gets their money over time or a portion of their money over time. That's different than earnout. Earnout is is at risk and it is it's contingent on hitting goals in the future in most most cases. So you know, with these people with the, that are getting you know the the high scores on on the AQ drivers, are, are you seeing? And I don't know if you track this at all, where they get more of their money up front. Yeah, we we don't, but we know anecdotally. We don't track it quantitatively, but but we know anecdotally and through this on radio, the podcast, that a lot of business owners are getting much better multiples and much better deal terms when they have a high value builder score. When you think about value builder score, just if you've got a high value builder score, you're in control. You're in control of the process. You can decide to sell or not. And if you do decide to sell, you've got much better leverage because your business is not dependent on you. So, uh, you know, they want to do a deal where, you know, 70% of the value is based on you hitting future, you know, it, it's hard to believe that deals would be that heavily weighted to, to earn outs, mm-hmm. but I've, I've seen them. Mm-hmm. But if, you, if you get that deal, you just basically say, no, there's four other companies that want to buy this business and I expect 100% up front or I expect 80% up front or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. So it just gives you better deal terms. It gives you better, uh, less on the earn out, more cash up front, less likely to be financed, you know, better terms, better employment terms for you as the owner. Because don't forget when you sell, you're likely to have to be an employee for theirs for a while. So yeah, it just gives you more leverage. So then to, to move into a couple of the key drivers to give you know a little bit of meat behind them, um, I want to get into recurring revenue because I think that's one that everybody wants and it, it's a lot, there's a lot of juice before, uh, behind it. But before we get into that one, I, I really actually like, you know, so financial reporting and the financial debt performance that, I mean, that's, you know, a lot of, some of these are fairly straightforward, but I think the one that I did, the cash flow teeter totter, can you explain that one before, you know, the recurring revenue? Cause I think if there's some very actual stuff that people can do that they, yeah. they don't really understand how important it is and how asking some hard questions with their clients or their vendors actually could impact the value of their business. So why don't you, why don't you dive into that one? Yeah, sure. So essentially when, when you go to sell your company, a buyer is going to look at it and they're essentially going to ask the question, how much working capital are we going to have to inject in this company in order to operate it the moment we, you know, we take over the business. And working capital is essentially, if you remember back to kind of economics class, grade 12 economics, it's the money your company needs to meet its immediate obligations, right? So basically the money in the bank that you need the day you hand over the keys to the, the other guys. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of entrepreneurs think, well, I've got you know six or $700,000 in retained earnings that's sitting there, a rainy day fund, that's my money. I've earned that money. When I sell my <laughs> business, I'm going to strip that out. And a lot of buyers say, uh-uh, no, that's money you've got in the company to run it, the business, to pay your employees, to, to, to pay for all of your immediate expenses. So that money stays. And it's often a, an area where a deal breaks down, especially if the owner has been running the business for decades and they, they take the view that working capital or their retained earnings are theirs to keep. And so one big takeaway from a negotiation standpoint is make sure if you're going to agree to a letter of intent with a buyer, uh, that you clear up what the working capital calculation is going to be at closing, what your expectations are and what their expectations are. Because it can change the value of the deal by well, certainly six figures, can be seven or, or more, depending on how much retained earnings. So that's that's a little bit off topic, but retained earnings and or working capital is key. So when a buyer comes in, they're going to look and say, okay, we need Uh, X amount of money in the company to run this business going forward. If your business is a cash suck, 
meaning you have the, you buy a lot of inventory. Uh, even though you may be profitable on paper, your accountant says, oh, your EBITDA margin is 12% at the end of the year. Well, that's great, but you're constantly having to borrow money. You're constantly having to inject money because you buy a lot of inventory or you buy a lot of machinery. You've got a negative cash flow cycle. And when a buyer looks at your business, they're going to say, man, the company looks decent on paper. They're making 12 points, but we're going to have to inject a ton of money uh, to buy more equipment, to buy more inventory, et cetera. So all of that money, you know, if you think about it, the, the money they're, they're using comes from the same place they're using to buy your business. It's all the same wallet, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more money that they have to inject into working capital, the less money they're willing to buy your business. Likewise, the inverse is also true. If they look at your business and say, these guys are just cash spigot, like they're just throwing off cash. They don't need any, any, any working capital. Uh, in fact, we're just going to start generating cash the moment we own the business. And they're willing to pay you a higher multiple because they don't have to, for, again, for a buyer, for a lot of buyers, private equity, VC, like a lot of professional buyers in particular and corporate buyers for that matter. And I guess individuals to some extent, I mean, for them, it's a return on investment game. Right? Like I'm going to invest X dollars and five, seven years down the road, I'm going to get 3X, 5X, 10X, whatever the number is. And so investing X dollars is not only buying your business, but also injecting working capital into it. Because, well, yeah, because if, it, if it's a million dollar revolving line of credit, that's a million dollars they can't, they can't do with something else. And, and it comes with a lot of headaches. I mean, I'm specifically from our story. I mean, we, we used to buy a ton of stuff. I mean, like lots and lots of it. And then all of us, and I always joke around in my keynote, like we were the bank for everybody else. <laughs> so yeah. It's yeah. like, well, no one enjoys that. And the owners don't enjoy that. So, you know, there's things like, you know, we've talked about where, you know, go ask your customer, your customers for a credit card up front. You know, you split the fees, do the, do these different things instead of, you know, giving certain amount of terms. I mean, there's certain things that you can do to, you know, I don't know if you've got any other ideas off the top of your head or at any of the podcasts you've done to reduce that working, uh, working capital. Yeah. I mean, all the things that you, you learn about in business school. So basically cash flow is uh, you know, money coming in, money going out. So I'd think about it in that context. So money coming in, how do I increase the speed and proportion of money coming in? So if you're charging for a cut, if you're a custom jobs you know, group and you're charging 10% of a deposit, could you charge 15 or 20 or 25? and not really affect your business. So that's number one, money coming in, like deposits, taking credit cards, uh, accelerating the, the speed with which you, you charge for your services, et cetera. Money going out is the other side of the equation. So clearly if you've got great suppliers and you're paying them in 30 days and you're a good customer, if you have a conversation with the supplier saying, look, would you mind if we move from 30 to 45 days? Um, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily blink an eye at that, especially if you're a good customer. I mean, there's a great famous, I don't know if you've ever read this, uh, Ryan, but the, uh, uh, the Dell case study from Kevin Rollins when, mm -hmm. I think it was HBR case study, he talked about how they basically took Dell, a computer company, from a negative cash flow cycle to a positive cash flow cycle. This is going back a decade or two. It's a really interesting case study, but it, it's... These, these things have a cumulative effect. So one tactic, like going from a 10% to positive 50%, isn't necessarily going to break, going to make a huge difference. But it's when you start stacking these little changes on themselves, mm -hmm. do they collectively uh, have the ability to turn a negative cash flow cycle into a positive one? Well, any I think you know, the moral of that story is, you know, it's not a big deal and you do these little things. It's worth asking the questions and doing, and, you know, picking up the phone and doing this little bit of hard lifting because you might get more money for your company. I mean, like that's the reality of it. So it's worth it. There's a significant 
rate of return on asking your customer for a different situation? <laughs> That's the cool thing about what we do. Uh, and I say we as in you and me is, is helping business owners improve their value. Like it's one thing to help someone improve their profitability. And it's a great thing. But if you help someone improve their value, it's, you know, if they're getting a 5X multiple for their company, you're, you're having like a huge impact on the overall value that they're deriving for their life. So a small tweak like we're talking about today, yeah, it might make you slightly more profitable at the end of the day, certainly help you cash flow. Uh, but man, it can have a profound impact on, on your, basically your, your paycheck at the end of the, uh, at the end of the run. So then that leads in a perfect lead into, because I think one of the hardest things that out of the, and this is just my random opinion, but out of the, all the different eight key drivers, a lot of them are, you know, when you kind of dive into them, they make, they make some serious sense. And then you're like, okay, that makes sense. And there's kind of some applicable ways to do that. But it, reoccurring revenue is something that I always say that everybody wants it. Everybody knows they need it, but they always say, well, not my industry or all these different excuses. But it's one of those things that I believe is one of the big needle movers which is why every and we're in the subscription economy, right? Where they, obviously there a lot of these companies are doing that for a reason. So can you like you know you've got the whole book on it on automatic customer, but it's, you know you've got a couple of different categories, the recurring revenue. But what would you say to someone that had maybe those excuses? Yeah, it's funny. I, I was doing a talk last uh, was it last week or two weeks ago down in New Orleans for the um, the home remodelers. So home remodelers are guys who basically put kitchens on and renovations and you want someone to like dig out your basement. They're like, they basically do additions for, for residential real estate. Uh, there was like 600 guys in the audience and most of them were guys, by the way. So it was like, a, <laughs> it actually works, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty funny thing. And I start getting on my high horse about recurring revenue and some guy gets in the audience and says, this, like, this would never work in our industry. So, um, I, I hear you, and I, I think you're right. There are some industries where it's much more difficult than others. And it may require a fairly strong stomach and a lateral view of your business. So let, let me give you an example. Uh, car washes, as an example. Car washes are one of those businesses that have been around for what, 50, 60 years. They've always been the same. You buy the soap, you buy the, the land, and then you send cars through at five, 10 bucks a pop, and Bob's your uncle. You make great money in June and, and March if you're in the Northeast in April when there's salt that needs to get off the cars, um, and then you die in November. And at the end of the year, you, you do a decent, like you do reasonably well. Well, a little while ago, some innovative pioneering car washes said, well, why don't we think about doing this as an all-you-can-eat kind of subscription model? Why don't we say to people, look, we'll charge you 10 or 20 bucks a month, and you can come in as many times as you want. doesn't matter. I've got one of those. Yeah. I yeah. remember. <laughs> yeah. And so what, so everybody in the car, wash, like the, the, the old school guys in the car wash industry go, that would never work. It costs us a dollar every time someone goes through a car wash. We could never make the economics work. The reality is we've got better things to do than sit in the car wash, right? So most of us, while you might subscribe to an, on, an unlimited car wash and go a couple times a month in the beginning, most of us don't go that often, right? We just got better things. I've got the kids. I've got Cheerios in my car every day. Oh, okay. Maybe you're, maybe you're the one <laughs> they guy. Lose, they lose money. I'm the one guy that's actually costing them money. <laughs> so, so this, uh, this sort of unlimited car wash has become a big thing. So now Mr. Car Wash is one of the big roll-up, yeah. private equity-backed roll-up guys in the car wash space. Um, I think they've got like 150 stores. Now they offer the unlimited car wash. 
And that's really revolutionizing the car wash business. And it's changing their valuation multiples. Now, car washes will, tra will trade at multiples of revenue as opposed to multiples of EBITDA as a result of the fact that they've got this recurring revenue. And so, you know, we see it in a variety of different industries. H. Bloom is a flower store that sells flowers on subscriptions, so they, they target hotels. So one of the things that I would do if you're listening to this and you go, yeah, it would never work in my industry, is ask yourself, who is the customer that buys what you sell at a regular cadence? Um, in H. Bloom's case, the flower guys, it wasn't the guy who buys flowers for Valentine's Day once a year. It was the hotels and the spa owners that wanted the fresh cut flowers on the reception table. Those were the, the buyers who bought flowers regularly. In the case of um, the car wash folks, it's a different segment. I can't remember exactly. It depends on the, the, the type of part of the country you're in but ask yourself who is who buys what you sell and has a need for it on a regular cadence in the case of the home remodelers it may not actually be the homeowners themselves it may be the contractors the trade so if you if you have uh, uh, roof tiles as an example you let's say you put on new roofs it may not be the homeowners that need a roof every 25 years it may be the installers that install roofs that you could put on a subscription basis. So again, think about who is it that buys what you sell on a regular cadence, and it may not be 100% of your customers. There may be a small segment, and that's where you might find the raw material for a subscription. And, and I got an interesting, funny story about this. So I got a client, um, which is in the wedding dress industry. <laughs> so who regularly buys wedding dresses? On an, on an ongoing basis. <laughs> Is this like a skill testing question? Am I supposed to say <laughs> no, I'm literally serious. Like, it's kind of funny because like we, when we were, because they were a client of mine, when we were sitting down going over this, we we're like, should we give an award for the person that buys the most amount of wedding dresses from you? No. no. <laughs> yeah. Frequent buyers club. <laughs> yeah. Not, not something. It's going to be more expensive than the, than the perks of the wedding dresses. But you know, I, I and on an actually serious note, they're, they, they're diversified. I mean, because they're really good at fitting and drop shipping dresses. So, I mean, I think it, it, to your point, it's thinking about it and more of the, what are your core skill sets? And they're launching new products like facial cream and stuff like that. So, because there's a lot of stuff that people buy in that one event, but they're expanding and like, so they can have subscriptions on facial cream, uh, facial cream. So they've got this triggering event of the wedding, but then there's other things that they can do for that client who's Perfect, yeah. In perpetuity, right? So, I mean, yeah. it is kind of a joke because we actually laughed about it. We're like, this is not the ideal industry to look for that specific target. Yeah, my, my wife's wedding dress is like on a shelving unit in our garage, <laughs> right? And it's been, she's worn it once and it's been there for 20 years. And I would love to get it out of her garage. I don't want to sell it. She doesn't want to throw it away. So, could they store the wedding dresses? Uh, you know Ooh. what I mean? For, for like yeah, six. Yeah. Six bucks a month will store your wedding dress. Now you might say, like, why would you want it? Why would you care about six bucks a month when you're charging like two, three, four grand for a wedding dress? The, the one secret to uh, recurring revenue that I think is so overlooked in many cases is that the act of having a subscription makes you infinitely more likely to buy other stuff from that company. So the, the classic example of that would be Amazon Prime. Right? So if you look at what the typical average Amazon customer spends a year with Amazon and compare it to the average Amazon Prime subscriber, it's like 3x. The Prime subscriber spends like three times more than the average Amazon customer. And a part of that's free shipping. But part of it is the fact that you as a Prime subscriber have given Amazon your credit card. You've given them permission to email you. 
uh, they have a relationship with you. And so when you think about, oh, maybe I want to buy dog food today, whether or not you have a subscription to dog food is kind of out of the point. Because you're a prime subscriber, they're the first place you go. And we see that in virtually every every industry. And go, to go back to car washes, if you're a car wash subscriber, guess what you're more likely to buy? Your windscreen wipers from that car wash. Because you're in there every day, they've got a relationship with you. You know the guys. They're, like, they're part of your sort of routine. And so you're much more likely to buy other stuff from the companies that you subscribe to. Which, which, by the way, is very interesting because that also opens up to kind of tie it to the eventual exit, whenever, how that ever looks for the, the owner, is now think about those different companies that you could strategically layer on. So maybe an auto body or you could, you know, sell to a product. I mean, like, so there's other people that you could potentially buy, but other companies that you could potentially sell to because of the, the platform that you build. Right. To go back to the wedding dress, like it's one thing to have a wedding dress company, right? It's another thing to say, yeah, we make wedding dresses and we have 14,000 women who pay us $4 a month to store their wedding dresses. And all of those women need other services, right? So they're all a married. So there's, there's a, there's a, or they're mostly married likely. And so there's a whole <laughs> list of additional products they probably need, right? And Absolutely. so an acquirer look at, looking at that business would say, wow, I'd love to get a hold of that list of 14,000 Mm -hmm. uh, women who store their wedding dresses for you. So again, it, it, it has lots of different knock-on effects. We're going to give you credit when we go back to this client. And, we're yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> and then if it doesn't work, say, I don't know, some guy. Toronto, some <laughs> no, no. They, this guy uh, this, this guy has read all of your stuff. He, and he, he is always referencing Alex from Built to Sell. And <laughs> so he, yeah, cool. he's, and you know, actually who I'm thinking of is Norm Brodsky and actually storing all this stuff and like right. be in the storage business. <laughs> yeah, Norm, the, uh, the, the famous columnist for Inc. Magazine <laughs> and his work. Yeah, he's great. So, you know, John, and I know we're short on time here, but, you know, when we think about, you know, so the listeners who have been following my podcast, you know, we get into some of the technical stuff more so than, than yours. And we get you know, all the kind of this all, all around advice. And we're in the last couple episodes have been about the valuation and diving into EBIT and ad backs and transferable, you know, cash flow. What are some of the things to, you know, to practical ways that you'd say, okay, you know, here's the things that you should focus on. If you got time, you know, cause I think that I go back to the, you know, if they've done some of these things where they've sat down with their CPA or certified valuation, that's a lot of technical stuff. How would you, so if you, if you got like a low score on one of these, you know, how do you determine how much time and money you should be spending at these and how to actually get that rate? You know, how are you getting that rate of return or your rate on effort or how are you quantifying what you're actually getting? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think the, the first place to start is monopoly control. And so monopoly control, again, it's inspired by Warren Buffett's the, the converse, com, the comment he's made many times, which is he invests in companies with a deep and wide competitive moat. And the reason for that is when you have a competitive position that's unique, it gives you pricing authority, meaning just to, to some extent, you can control your pricing. You can charge better margins. When you've got better margins, you get more market, you get more money to invest in marketing. And more marketing dollars means you can further differentiate your product or service. And then it creates this kind of triggering domino effect. And so monopoly control is about having one thing that really makes you unique and that, that you do better than anybody else. And that one thing could be, it largely should be your product. And I think the, the biggest disservice done to the business owner community is, is telling them or that old sort of folklore that, that it's five times or 10 times easier to cross-sell 
a second product to an existing customer than it would be to go find a new customer. And while I agree in sales lingo that I'm sure it is better to cross-sell and cheaper and easier to cross-sell, it doesn't make your business more valuable because the services that we typically cross-sell are not ones we're differentiated on. It's just a, it, mm-hmm. a habit of, it's a, it's, a, it's a sale of convenience for the buyer. And so when an acquirer looks at your company, they're going to look at it and say, there's this great company here, but we've also got to buy all these other little services on which we already compete. We've got a better product for, uh, we're not interested in being in that business, et cetera. And, you know, I'm reminded of a podcast I did with a guy who created an ice cream store, an ice cream brand. And so he always wanted, so he made his own ice cream. He also always kind of liked the idea of having retail stores. So he vertically integrated and created a, a network of like 60 retail stores where he sold his ice cream. He also sold his ice cream in Kruger's and some of the big department stores in the United States. And he went to sell the company and nobody wanted to buy it because they all looked at it and said, I like part of your business. Like I like the distribution part, but I don't like the retail part. I like the retail part, but I don't like the manufacturing part. And eventually he ultimately sold his business for a relatively low multiple. And the moment the acquirer bought the business, they shut down all 60 stores. Oh and my like, gosh. We, we have no interest. And this was like his yeah. hugely part of who he was as a person, right? His identifying, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. community and so forth. And, um, and they said, yeah, no, we have no interest in being a retail business. We want to do a business because we want to get our product into Kruger's at, or Kroger's or whatever the name is. Yep, yep. And, um, and we wanted to use your product as sort of a Trojan horse to get us in there. So, you know, the, the long and the short of it is, I think what you want to do is figure out what one thing you are better than anybody else in the world at doing and stick to your knitting. I think it's going to drive a much better multiple at the end of the day. And yes, it's more difficult and it's, it's more difficult to sell uh, your customers and it's more difficult to grow. But man, when you go to buy your business, it's like, it's like we all buy, know, increasingly we're not buying, but you remember when you buy cable television and you, you like you get ESPN, you get whatever CNN, Fox, whatever you're into. But then you get the other 198 channels that you have <laughs> never watch, and and you end up having to buy them and, and subscription. And you're like, it, it leaves the buyer with a state of, dis, uh, of remorse. And the same thing is true of a company. If they, if you have a hodgepodge of services, one of which is really cool, and the others are just me too products, it really is a huge turnoff for buyers. And now, obviously, there, which I think you had some very good points here, but yeah, you have to have a, a lens. And I don't know how you would maybe articulate this, but with that within the reoccurring revenue lens and these other lenses, where you know you're trying to accomplish some of them all at the same time, right? Where like it might be a different product or service, or maybe just how you're just are you know re-engineering what you're offering, um, like you, like you said, so storage versus you know wedding dresses, right? So I mean, obviously, you have to put some common sense approach to, to what you're saying, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's a practical sense. And with monopoly control uh, in particular, like if you, if you have 12 different products and services, let's just say, uh, one or two of them are really highly differentiated and, and the, the rest are kind of me too products, I'm not suggesting that you go out and drop all the other 10 products overnight. I'm saying that you're going to get a material in, in, in improvement in both your quality of life as an entrepreneur as well as ultimately the value of your business. If you start with the product and service that is mm-hmm. the least differentiated uh, and say, how can we, how, you know, should we really be in this business? And, and then work up from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, get rid of one a year. Uh, so don't rip the band-aid off and get rid of all 10. Work slowly up the ladder so that over time, you're really 
competing in markets and what's your true differentiation. Well, I think what you said is like, I mean, coming from my old industry, I mean, like we sold copiers, software, managed IT services, computer hardware, telecom. I mean, like you sit there and you go, what the heck are we doing? And I always go back to everybody was like, everybody was always talking about all the next things that you should sell. And then there's this one guy locally who's got this very large company. He only sold copiers and the guy just kills it. (laughs) He just prints, prints money. Um, And I think it's challenging because, you know, entrepreneurs are, are flashy object individuals, you know, so they're always talking about how, I mean, how would you, yeah, any, any word of advice uh, for the entrepreneur who's always chasing the next thing? Oh man, it, it reminds me of Elon Musk. I mean, he's the, he's, the, he's the Steve Jobs of our generation for sure. And I mean, who am I to criticize what he's created? He's, he's incredible. Uh, but man, uh, talk about uh, talk about different uh, different businesses. You got SpaceX, the boring company, of course, Tesla. I mean, I think taking a page, yeah, taking a page out of Elon Musk's book. At least he's differentiating. Uh, the companies he, he's not uh, you know he's been relatively pure on SpaceX he's he's starting to differentiate or, or, or sort of get more into other products with Tesla because he's obviously got three or four products the car, car company but he's also now gone into solar energy so look uh, I'm not one to, to criticize uh, Musk certainly for what he's created but um, uh, but I think branding the businesses differently if if you're trying to um, uh, create different you know, options to divest of them. You know what I mean? Yeah, so you, yeah, you yeah. He can, he, yeah, yeah. Musk can obviously sell uh, SpaceX. I mean, they're, they're totally separate capital structures. They're in no way they're not related, other than having a similar. Uh, sure. So, I know we got to run, so I'm got to be conscious of your time. So, but you know, if you were to summarize or highlight one of the things that we've talked about, or if we missed something that you, you always want to leave the business owners with, what what would it be? It's really where we started the conversation, Ryan, which is uh, for your business to be valuable, it, it needs to run without you. And there's a whole bunch of different things. In fact, there are eight unique things you can do uh, to make it so that it's less dependent on you. And that gives you lots of control. It gives you a better multiple if you ever want to sell, but it also gives you a lot more control of your time and a business that you're really uh, kind of overseeing as opposed to uh, fighting fires with. So I think it's, uh, it's worth doing if you can and best way to get in touch with you if the listeners wanted to, what would it be? Uh, so probably just um, uh, on Twitter, at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Try saying that a couple times fast. Yeah, right. no thanks. <laughs> hey, I actually had a blast doing this again. I'm glad we, uh, we coordinated the time to get you back on the show. Awesome. Me too. Thanks, Ryan. See you, John. Well, if you didn't expect it, the big takeaway for today is go get your value builder report because it's free. It only takes a few minutes and it'll give you some pretty actionable explanations of the eight key drivers and where you stand on them. Because if you've been listening in for the last few episodes, you understand like I have a benchmark. I know where I want to go. Hopefully there's a dollar amount that you're actually pursuing. If there's a specific exit option that you're pursuing, but now this can be the roadmap to help you really move the needle because instead of getting 2 million, maybe you get 3 million 
million for your company instead of getting three or four million you're getting a seven or an eight million dollar amount because you did things right when you get these reports you look at it and say oh maybe i should call that customer and ask him for their money up front or maybe i could call my vendors and ask them to delay my payments a little bit or maybe i should take the time to think about how can i implement recurring revenue yes this is hard work other than just getting up and grinding away but the the results and the return on your effort can be astronomical because listen to what he said about that jill nelson <laughs> like instead of getting the two million dollars she got 38 million dollars so i hope you enjoyed this few episode series go take the value builder system report there also will be a couple biz equities like i said there's 10 if you want to go on there and you want to get a benchmark for where you're at so hopefully out of these few episodes you can walk away saying i know where i'm at and i know where i need to go and there's some context to why you're waking up every single day and taking all the crazy risks to run this company but there's a bunch of perks and there's a bunch of benefits and there's a huge gold pot at the end of the rainbow if you choose to pursue it so if you enjoyed it go on to itunes give me a rating otherwise i will see you next week